0: Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxell. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxell's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics,
1: from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. Hi, Christopher. How are you?
0: Good morning, Amy. I'm doing well.
1: All right. This is Christopher Cook. He is a member of the Real Estate Practice Group at Holly Troxel. Um, He also does some business and uh, alcohol licensing work, and he's here with me.
0: So we have also Amy Knight, who is associate with Holly Troxel as well. Um, Also transactional practice group, I guess primarily focusing on real estate and some corporate work and we're kind of reversed in our percentages there, but.
1: Right, yep, a little bit of everything.
0: We're here back uh, for part two.
1: Yeah, so if you are uh, listening to this podcast and you have not listened to our premiere HOA podcast, you should go back and listen to that because we cover some good stuff that we're not going to cover again here. Um And I also make some stupid jokes that I'm not going to retell. <laughs> so that's good. And probably a relief for everybody. But um, so, Christopher, when we started the first podcast, we took that from the um, perspective of someone who has just purchased a home and discovered that there is such a thing as an HOA that has some control.
0: That's right. Yep. I think... I think from that perspective, if you're a homeowner, part one is going to be more beneficial to you. But we're back here today, focusing on the perspective of now you are—you've been a homeowner for a while. You realize that there's an HOA involved in your subdivision, um, and now you've you've joined the board right. of your HOA and right. some red flags and pitfalls. Um, from the HOA's perspective and a board perspective there.
1: Yeah. So um, so that's why we're not going to cover that old stuff. But I am going to revisit it just enough to point out a couple of basic things, including... The governing documents that would be uh, relevant to you if you are the director or on a homeowner association board. So, uh, just to recap, there's sort of four documents that you would want to be sure that you have. The first one would be the plat that created the subdivision that your home. Uh, is located in. um, That's available from your uh, recorder's office. Um, And that relates to the declaration uh, of covenants conditions and restrictions or CCRs. Um, They go by a variety of names that uh, controls what can be done on all of the Uh, Land that is subject to the PLAT. So you want your articles as well. The articles are the thing that created the HOA, um, and that would be available at the Secretary of State's office. And assuming that your HOA is a nonprofit corporation, you'll also have bylaws. Right. So four things. Uh, PLAT, deck or declaration, articles, bylaws, get them, read them.
0: Love them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, I think, I mean, a lot of times I think we get some, some clients, both from the HOA and homeowner perspective, and they say we have an HOA and what does that really mean? And most commonly that means that, you know, the developer developed the subdivision recorded the deck against it, and then in that declaration, provided for the creation of an HOA. And what that HOA is, is really a corporation, whether it's formally incorporated with the Secretary of State or informally. I mean, preferably, hopefully it's it has been created and, and formed, this corporate entity, which is the HOA is is on file with the Secretary of State um and then like you said you can pull the articles um and the articles are public record but the bylaws are not so you will have to dig around um Sleuth. yes for the bylaws and the bylaws govern i guess the the internal workings of the HOA like how directors um you know, the obligations of the directors, calling of meetings, um, and things like that. So the articles won't, won't have those provisions. So you need to read all of these in conjunction with one another.
1: Right. Yep. And, um, I suppose that it's helpful to footnote here that as Christopher said, it is possible to have an HOA that wasn't, Formally formed by anyone Um, that does happen, particularly developers who are in a rush and are trying to get from one project to another and are not particularly worried about what this thing is going to be like in 10 years. Um, We do see that from time to time. And um, Idaho code has some workarounds available for that, but for the most part, I think it's, fair to say that the standard package includes a a corporation formed under Idaho law, not for profit by articles and bylaws. So those are your four documents. But I think also, Christopher, it's helpful for us to point out that uh, even though those are private contracts between parties that create obligations, um, they can't be contrary to Idaho law. Right. And so there are some Idaho law fillers and other things that we need to talk about today that would impact how an HOA works in addition to those four documents.
0: Right. So I guess there are really two governing statutes um, or codes that, that apply to HOAs. Um, first, you're dealing with the Idaho Nonprofit Corporation Act, which deals with the corporate formalities of this entity that is the HOA. Um, and then you also have the Homeowners Association Act, um, which is sets forth specific rules dealing with HOAs, what they can and can't do, what they can and can't restrict. And so I think what we'll do is quickly you know review some of the key gap fillers and requirements of those of those two statutes um, starting with membership meetings and so an hoa is really formed for the benefit of its members and the members are the homeowners and owners of property within the subdivision that is reflected on the plat and so every every year you have to the HOA has to call a member meeting Mm -hmm. um, of the members and you have to send notice of this meeting out um, and you have to try to um,
1: make that information like available to the people who would need it right
0: that's right I mean I think any action that Certain actions, I guess, require member approval, and certain actions require board approval. Oh, right. And so to the extent, I mean, the statute does require an annual member meeting, and so I guess at its most basic form, that that is a corporate formality that is important to follow. And these meetings, I guess we get a lot of questions... Um, about whether or not these meetings need to be in person or whether they can be remote.
1: Yeah, I feel like that came up quite a lot after COVID in particular. Um the concept of remote meetings and there actually is a provision I believe in uh the nonprofit act that says but it might have been the HOA act that that you can do those meetings electronically so long as a majority of the members have approved that. I think in the modern world, right, it's a lot easier for us to hop on Zoom or Teams or uh, WebEx than for all of us to get in our cars and drive to the local library.
0: That's right. I mean, assuming that members are notified of the meeting appropriately, I think the key... Whether or not you're having these hybrid meetings, and that is definitely common now that you know a lot of homes are vacation homes, um, but the key, I think, for for statutory compliance purposes, are that the the members participating remotely can all hear each other, they can all interact, speak with one another. Mm. Um,
1: Count toward the quorum. I guess we should talk about a quorum, right? A lot, uh, so one of the, I think this is actually sort of a threshold issue that HOAs struggle with is um, many articles and bylaws have this concept that you have to hit a certain percentage of members in attendance, in order for the meeting to constitute an actual, you know, meeting of of the HOA, um, and you know, I mean, life is busy and it can be hard for a board to get enough people to show up and participate.
0: Yeah, people don't want to. Some people don't want to participate in their HOA meetings, but to the effect that you're you're trying to get you need member approval to take some sort of action, Mm -hmm. the meeting does require a quorum of the members, Mm -hmm. which is... a minimum
1: percentage. And
0: that will be set out in your articles and bylaws, so it's important to read that. I mean, usually a a majority is a minimum, but sometimes certain actions take a higher percentage. Um, For example, like amending the bylaws is one that we get, or amending the articles or Mm -hmm. amending the declaration. Mm -hmm that may take 75% of the members to vote. And so in that instance, you would have to call a member meeting, mm-hmm. whether or not that's handled at the annual meeting that you call or a special meeting. Um, but you have to have at least a quorum to hold that meeting and and take action. And if, if only a majority show up at that meeting and the action required takes 75%, you can still hold a meeting, but you can't take that
1: action. Mm, so you have to think about it in both, both, uh, both do we have a quorum and have we got enough votes to do the thing. Right. So this I think relates to uh, uh, a thing I got from my HOA a couple months ago for the meeting where they asked me to sign a proxy. Mm. Mm, and so. Um, Don't sign
0: anything before talking to your attorney. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. In general, though, what what how, how would we describe a proxy and like how does that relate to like the quorum and the voting and stuff like that?
0: Well, I guess if if you and I were members of an HOA and the board sends out notice to us and we both receive it and, you know, you're in Hawaii on vacation,
1: mm-hmm. That's you can be say
0: great. <laughs> you can say, Christopher, I'm going to. I'm going to designate you as my proxy and vote on my behalf at that meeting
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so you will you'll sign a proxy statement mm-hmm. um i'll carry it with me to that meeting and at that meeting i'll say you know christopher cook's present and i'm acting as proxy for amy mm-hmm. and so i will effectively control two votes at that and, meeting
1: and then they can count that toward the Quorum and the voting tally and all of that. So that's a helpful way to okay
0: and I think I mean really the takeaway is that the I think the The HOA and the directors should at least adopt some process of Notifying members that's in compliance with the their articles and bylaws and statute and if they're gonna have hybrid meetings make sure that the method is you know allows all the members to hear and participate in the meeting um right and if you're if you're concerned as to whether or not your documents allow that type of hybrid give us a call and we'll take a look for you
1: yeah so and then all of these become sort of part of a body of corporate records that probably i think folks need to hold on to right um I think this is probably another challenge that board members run into is you have maybe an outgoing board member. You have someone who's put in their time and done done a diligent little job, and they're done with that now because it's a lot of work for free. And, um, and I think that they may – it's not unusual to hear that, like, they didn't pass on records or records were not available from the past. We don't
0: have any records. What records? Yes,
1: exactly. (laughs) And I think that, um, I think it's probably helpful to point out also that the records don't really belong to the directors, the individuals who are on these HOAs boards there. They belong to the HOA itself and it actually gives you a level of comfort and protection as a director to keep those records and to keep good records isn't that right
0: no that's right i think you know to that end and i think we'll get to this late a little bit later on when we talk about fiduciary duties but you you are required and it's important at these meetings of members and directors that you keep minutes and records um, of the actions taken at that meeting because what you don't want to have happen is you you know, you do everything right, and you take some action at a meeting, and then there's no history of you ever doing it. And a member comes out of the disgruntled, member comes out of the woodwork, you know, you want to be able to, I guess, support the action that you've taken sure. um, on behalf of it. And and like you said, those are those are records of the association. And so it's important not to let one director maybe Take all the records and hide them in their basement somewhere.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or lose them on their computer. Right. So, and I think the other reason why this comes up and becomes important is because some of the records that HOAs uh, keep relate to finances and accounting. And um, as uh, we discussed in our first podcast, um, one of the things that HOAs do is assess uh you know annual payments or special payments for special purposes to their members and um you know money is serious business right and and you need to be able to keep track of we assessed we assessed this for this purpose and we did it for the right reason and this is the money that came in and here's how we spent it you need to have
0: Yeah, this is not a bury your head in the sand situation. I mean, I think, you know, the, the members are entitled to inspect records of the HOA. And so if you receive as a board member or the board as a whole receives a request for inspection of records.
1: Yeah, you want to be able to comply, right?
0: Right. And some of those, I mean, I guess maybe we'll get into that, but a few things that the HOA's that an HOA needs to maintain are, you know, first and foremost, I think it's a, it's, it's accounting records, it's lists of the members and Mm -hmm. directors, Mm -hmm. including names and addresses. Um, It's governing documents. And I guess, you know, recently, there was some law passed um, in the last few years, that Within within five days of a member's request, the HOA must provide the member a statement of his account.
1: Right. And that would come up, I think I see that come up most frequently in purchase and sale of homes, right? Right. Um, and the reason why is because those, uh, those assessments often have a hammer associated, which is a lien. And... Um, When a person goes to purchase a house, they want to be sure that it doesn't have existing liens against it. And if they're getting a mortgage to help buy the house, their lender definitely wants to know that there aren't any existing liens against it. And the only way really to tell if there's assessments due is by asking the HOA. Um, Liens would be reflected in the public record, but... um, You know you want to know right and you also want to know like is this like uh, an hoa that's going to charge me 500 bucks a month or is it 500 bucks a year that's going to be materially different
0: yeah and i mean to that to that point i mean right maybe before someone is going to sell their house they're going to want to know hey am i current on my dues and so you're going to get this you're going to get it as a board member you're going to get an email saying My current on my dues, how many, you know, what are my dues owing? Mm -hmm. Because I'm selling my house. I want to tell the new buyer. And so the HOA needs to provide that within a certain amount of time and also cannot charge a fee Mm -hmm. for that.
1: Yeah, Um, there was, um, I think the last legislative session, they, they confirmed no fee. For getting that information. Um, so and the HOA has to be Johnny on the spot. And then on or before January the first of each year, the HOA needs to provide its member ship as a whole a disclosure of, of fees. Um, and, you know, and also is required to provide members with up-to-date reconciled financial disclosures. And uh, also has tax reporting obligations to the state and the IRS. Like the the tracking of the money here is no joke.
0: No, that's right. And I mean, I guess t- on, on what fees an HOA can charge in connection with the sale of a, of a home, because there is some transition, you know, probably some admin expenses that are charged or that are incurred by an HOA when they... You know, when ownership changes, and so you can charge a reasonable fee for you know in connection with change of ownership of a property um, mm-hmm. but again, you have to you have to set that fee. it's probably best that it's in your bylaws um, you know you've adopted a fee schedule of some sort um, and you do have to disclose that before January first of the of each year if you're gonna charge those fees
1: yeah yeah and and then I think. Uh, In terms of seeing questions from clients, a lot of our questions relate to problems arising and those having monetary consequences. So um, uh, in general, folks who won't pay assessments, that can create a problem. Um, Or folks who are not... Uh, keeping their property up or complying in some way with a covenant inside of that declaration and um, the HOA wanting to use the hammer of a lien to get them to comply. So we get lots of questions for those. In general, if an HOA wants to claim a lien under the Homeowners Association Act, um, they have to file a verified claim, containing the uh, particular information about that lien with their county recorder, and that's sort of a, that's a legal technical f- phrase. A verified claim, you know, that you would want to get an attorney's help with, I think, uh, to make sure you get it right. And then, and then you have to give a copy of that lien to the property owner, uh, within five days so that they know this thing is out there.
0: I mean, the idea is that you want them to correct it, right? So this, you don't, you don't want to hide the ball here, um, and just record a lien because there are some. There are some defenses to liens that may not be valid or that have been recorded against the property and they shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. So there is some exposure there. So I guess if, if you're wanting to record a lien or enforce your rights under the, the declaration, it's good to call Hollytroxel yeah. <laughs> before you may want to do that. But I guess, you know, a lien is, is one type of hammer. Um, but then I guess the other one oftentimes we get are about fines right. and the association's ability to assess fines against its members for, for violations. For violations,
1: yeah. So what's the deal with that? When can they do that? How do they know when they can do that?
0: Well, so on, on fines, there was um, some legislation passed that requ- – well, I guess that prohibits – HOAs from assessing fines against any particular member unless the declaration specifically allows the HOA to do so charge right assess fines and so you know before you go down that hole uh, or that route uh, get a copy of your declaration and see if it specifically calls out fines and it's pretty it's pretty clear i mean it needs to say fine
1: yeah like the word fine yeah should be in there something yes, something that is clear on that yeah and then in general i know the hoa act requires you to give written notice of the member that you're gonna you know have a meeting to like discuss this fine and um and if the member resolves the violation before the the meeting, uh, then you you gotta let it go. I I think that all of these rules are sort of intended to give a homeowner, you know, like fair warning of mm-hmm. here's here's the financial repercussions of of you know doing or not doing a thing that you are not supposed to do
0: and I think we've had pretty good success I mean if you if you follow the procedure set out in the code I mean I think there's a likely it depends on the violation I mean if somebody's painted their house pink they're Mm,
1: lilac I think it was it's
0: harder to potentially get them to to cure that violation and what the costs are involved but you know there there are stories of fairly good success if if you follow the process um sure and i guess you know t- going back to our our meeting requirements so the directors have to vote to assess the fine mm-hmm. right and so you know you may have directors all over the country right on mm-hmm. vacation so there there is an ability of directors to to take an action without a meeting a formal action without a meeting but mm-hmm. the statute does require in the nonprofit context um, that any written action by written consent, I guess is what we would call that, Mm -hmm. needs to be signed by all of the directors.
1: Like a unanimous type vote where, yeah, everybody says, I'm in on this. Yeah.
0: So if you're you can certainly do that, um, but just know that it needs to be an email chain that has maybe, you know, three out of the five may not do it. I mean, it's best to formally hold a meeting or get unanimous consent um, for director actions that are going to have, you know, maybe some significant repercussions.
1: And I think here it's helpful to draw a distinction also between the annual member meeting and board meetings. Right. And that um, sort of comes up. I I can think of two things that sort of typically come up. One of them is Uh, The concept that, um, like in your case uh, that you were just describing, you've got folks who live all over the country and what they're dealing with is like a subdivision that is basically a bunch of vacation homes in McCall or Sun Valley or something. And um, it's obviously cumbersome to require them all to show up. And have a conversation. It might be possible to do it by Zoom mm-hmm. um, and have a conversation and make these decisions, or you could do it with like a unanimous consent sort of situation. But one of the things that Idaho law does require via the Nonprofit Act is the concept of open board meetings. Mm, that's right. And we've got a number of questions from clients who ask I think a really basic and good question like w- what in the heck does that mean how do you have an open board meeting um and that can be tough and I think one of the things that is helpful and some sort of generic advice we give people is um sort of it's expedient and um efficient to just sort of have like a standing board meeting like Mm -hmm. every thursday at seven like the first thursday of every month at 7 p.m we're going to have our board meeting and if you make that information available to the hoa members and they know that you know that's when we do it and and um they can show up either physically or on a zoom or something and and that information is readily available to them then it's probably an open meeting
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i mean i guess to that end it, it you know the the hoa specific act well the hoa act require right the hoa act requirement that meetings be open mm-hmm kind of you know contradicts the corporate act which says actions can be taken by written consent mm-hmm. right because those meetings are arguably not open right because you're just circulating a document and so if you're if you're worried i think like you said it's better to formally take action at a meeting and at least
1: have it, have it have it done in a, a, a way that you can say oh yeah no that definitely happened that Thursday mm-hmm. at 7 p.m because that's when we always do it and look here we have minutes that show exactly um, and I think the other question that I get also is from board members who say well I live next door to Christopher and we're both on the board and like we commonly are standing out front with our lawnmowers and can we just like have a conversation about what's going on? And I think the answer there is yes, absolutely. You can right. you can totally chat up, you know, what's going on in the HOA and what we need to do, but we would we would probably again counsel that you know, it's probably in your best interest as a director that when you go to make decisions that you do those in one of these either formal meetings or written consents or something that's going to uh, be evidenced by paperwork.
0: Any significant action that could have repercussions from members, I think it's it's best to do that formally. Yeah. Definitely.
1: And then um, I guess that feeds pretty well into sort of these general fiduciary duties um, that board members have um for uh you know their job and so so let's see can you um help us understand what a fiduciary duty is generally
0: i mean so these these fiduciary duty concepts i think are they're probably familiar to to individuals in the corporate world mm-hmm. you know you hear stories on tv and that directors went off the rails and started doing things for their personal gain and mm-hmm. not for the benefit of their shareholders mm-hmm. in a corporate mm-hmm. context. But the idea is the same here, where you are the director of a corporation and that corporation's purpose generally is for the benefit of its of its members and the properties that it holds. And so there are there are fiduciary, I mean the, the code imposes fiduciary duties on directors and those fiduciary duties are are usually you know the duties of good faith loyalty um and the duty of care i suppose and what what this really means is you need to act you need to act reasonably Mm -hmm. you need to act as um you need to you need to discharge your fiduciary duties as a quote unquote reasonable person in kind of similar circumstances would. right. So if you feel like something is if you feel like something isn't right, I think the the idea is that you you should not be afraid to say something to your fellow directors right And you can discharge that duty by making. You know, by by saying your piece, and just because, just because an action is is taken that you don't agree with, doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. But you should weigh in, weigh in, and yeah, tell them what you think is right.
1: And I think that that um, implicates the duties uh, to uh, oversee what's going on. Um, it's sort of a it's sort of a hand in hand thing, right? And and I know that again, life is busy. Everybody who's on an HOA board is like doing it for free, and they've got lots of other stuff going on. And you have to do lots of division of labor to keep stuff moving. But in general, the law imposes upon directors the requirement to uh, keep. Uh, up to date on all the sufficient information they need to make informed decisions and to show up to
0: your show up to the board meetings yeah
1: listen to what's going on be aware of the general goings-on of the hoa including its finances that sort of thing so um that's sort of the starting point for
0: yeah, I mean, just um, keep in mind that you're not doing this for yourself; you're doing it for others, and so keep keep yes. that in mind. Yeah,
1: and and, <laughs> and uh, despite my joke in in the first podcast, like it, it it does sort of take a little bit of a of a caring personality to be you know willing to dig in and and yeah. do your best, and um and also to be loyal. So that's one of the things I think that comes up a lot is is um, where a director needs to be loyal to the HOA over himself or herself so, and, and their interests. Like, I, I would like to change the HOA to make lilac an, an acceptable <laughs> color because I want to paint my house a beautiful shade of lilac. And, and if you know that that's not gonna be great for property value
0: you know well you're wearing two hats right so if you're a director you're often also a member right and so you can show up wearing your member hat to the member meeting and say fellow members
1: let's go with lilac yeah (laughs)
0: lilac is the best let's do lilac yeah and then you then have to navigate that you know, tricky field where then you have your director hat on and are you gonna vote for and against that right you know, proposed amendment to allow or require everyone's houses be painted lilac.
1: But, right. Because that um, would be amazing. But I think that even though that's a silly that's a silly example, um, what it really comes up is actual conflicts of interest, right? Right.
0: Yeah and I, we get stories I mean uh, it, the the act prohibits conflicts of well I guess it there's provisions dealing with conflicts of interest and how to handle those and oftentimes directors can potentially have conflicts of interest I guess one example is let's say a director owns independently they have a landscaping business right oh that's
1: like their real job their real job their real job is as a landscaper they own their own landscaping company okay yeah
0: and so now the hoa has a whole bunch of common area that it has to maintain and you know agenda item comes up and says who should we hire for our landscape maintenance and director one says how about me <laughs> let's 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 use my company and so, fyi it's going to be you know the market price is 100 dollars an hour but we're going to do 300 dollars an hour
1: so yeah so in a situation like that Where we're looking for, we're the HOA, we're looking for landscaping company or accountant or lawyer or property manager or something. Should we just like never use directors? Should we just like say no director can ever be used? Or is there, does conflict of interest mean like there can be no conflict of interest or or is there wiggle room in there? You know what I mean?
0: Right, yeah, no, just because there's a conflict of interest doesn't mean you you can't move forward. It's just you have to um, disclose the conflict. Mm -hmm. I mean, the director that has the conflict needs to make that conflict known. Oh, so
1: instead of being like, uh, just hire this company, they're awesome, and not mentioning that you own the company. Don't
0: ask about the bill, just sign it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, don't do that.
1: What you want to say is, Hey, you guys probably realize this, but I just want to point out, like I own a landscape company and I would be willing to throw in a bid.
0: Right. I think that's a great idea is the bids. So you just say that, you know, but when it comes down to picking a land, you know, if, if it comes down to choosing your or the director's landscape business or the director's law firm mm-hmm. or the ideally the director should not vote on that action so it the decision to go with a with you know a potential Arrangement that involves a conflict of interest should not be voted on by those that have the conflict. It should be independently Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, so if there's like let's say five directors on the board and one of them is the landscaper Probably the the right thing for him to do is to go. Okay. I'm going to set out this vote Because I put in a bid for the work and and then the other director should probably frankly discuss like is this market standard does this work for us are we comfortable with this how does this you know compare to the other bids yeah looks pretty good uh you know he might actually do a better job if he lives here because he'll want it to look nice so
0: yeah i mean they're all great i mean there's definitely the benefit Right of of using those resources and connections that directors have. Just um, you don't want to you don't want to have a situation where a director is individually benefiting to the detriment of the members without right. appropriate, I guess, action.
1: And and here again, this is where paperwork, this is where meeting minutes and things like that are really going to do. I'm uh, I. I a lot of good for particularly the director who has the conflict of interest i if i were in that those shoes i think i would be like let's document the heck out of this so that right it's clear that we did this exactly the right way
0: and because the risk there for a director is that if you if you are found to have breached your fiduciary duty um or engaged in some kind of self-dealing activity then you're personally liable right for that action um in a traditional sense usually directors are kind of insulated for their actions that are taken in good faith um you know they the members can't sue an individual director for i mean anybody can sue anybody for anything but theoretically if you're complying with the statute and your obligations that the corporate entity insulates directors from corporate from individual liability so
1: long as they don't breach these these duties yeah and it's where that breach occurs that they really become yeah so and i think that this is frankly sometimes easy to do um i think that uh sometimes you can find coincident uh um type uh scenarios where we both benefit the hoa benefits and the director benefits Um, I know at least of one circumstance where, um, you know, like a board member had a daughter who was getting married and they needed like tents for the wedding. And then the HOA also holds an annual party, which could also benefit from tents. And, you know, you sort of find yourself... Going, well, I mean, buying tents, you know, like that'll work for everybody. But I think that the most important thing really here is that where a board has kept good records of its decisions and can rely on some continuity in decisions um, and some written rules that um, Idaho law can be forgiving of decisions made by the board where they clearly are acting in the best interest of the whole and are uh, mindful of of their fiduciary obligations.
0: Yep, I think that's right.
1: And then I think the only other thing I wanted to talk about really briefly is the the protection of individual property rights. So there is, um, I think as we talked about in our first, Um, podcast, we're in a real um, uh, protective state for property rights. And um, one of the things that the HOA Act specifically says is that a a board cannot adopt restrictions on um, certain uses of people's own property uh, members own property like um,
0: yeah there's some strange ones in there
1: yeah uh, so let's maybe let's hit that really quick uh, the first one I would say is solar panels Um, you know I, I'm sure that in some neighborhoods it's not super classy to have solar panels on the roof but you know they can't, can't prohibit it can't prohibit it people have the right political signs that's probably crossover from the First Amendment free speech world, right? Um, flags.
0: So,
1: yep. Patriotic flags. Yep. Um, all of those um, need to be um, need to be uh, subject to reasonable rules and guidelines. Um, so but- maybe
0: that like solar panels need to be on your roof and you can't build your fence out of solar
1: panels. Yeah, right. <laughs> that is a great idea though. I
0: mean... <laughs> Maybe we're onto something.
1: <laughs> and then they recently passed. I think the last legislative session passed um, some some uh, legislation on what we call ADUs, um, relating to people's uh, homeowners' uh, use of their property.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think this this legislation you can you can look it up if you need to. Um, I think it's House Bill 166, right? Um, with the housing crunch and and demand and crisis now that's that's hitting Idaho you know there's been some legislative action to i guess increase housing and and to that end there was a bill passed that i guess effectively prevents HOAs from restricting homeowners from using let's say their basement or you know kind their their basement or maybe like a little apartment above their garage as an accessory dwelling unit and maybe renting that out separately
1: right i think that um we sort of traditionally think of these things as mother-in-law suites Mm -hmm. right it's a um it's got a bathroom and a kitchen and a living area and um and I read this House Bill 166 from the 2023 legislative session and um as as with many things I in that session I, I was a little bit like I'm not sure exactly how this reads and I think that it also interplays with um what the particular HOA already has in its uh, in its deck or or whatever uh
0: yeah as we were as we were talking about this over lunch and reading this this bill i mean i think we realized that it you know the the code changes are not only to the the hoa you know the act but there's these changes to allow accessory dwelling units, you know, appear in more than one location, and sometimes, right. you know, uh, this this doesn't go into effect uh, until when is it?
1: July the first, it says.
0: Right. So, you know, th- I think firms and the legal community will still have to review these and and decide exactly how they're going to be interpreted and and apply.
1: Right. And I think that um, just from the context of the thing, it appeared that what they were really trying to do was uh, to um, allow property owners the right to have these ADUs or mother-in-law suites, um, but trying to keep it from becoming like um, short-term rental or... Um, a multifamily type of scenario. So I think it's important if, if anybody has questions about those sorts of things to, to speak to an attorney, we'd be happy to talk to you. Um, because there are other things that will come in mm-hmm. to play too, like local zoning code and. And um, things of that nature. We already have zoning code that is uh, being changed um, in the city of Boise now with respect to ADUs. So I think this is a moving target at the moment
0: right and very popular um and i think it will depend i mean a lot of these statutes it may depend on whether it's your basement or whether it's above your garage or whether it's a freestanding adu whether you have more than one is that adu on wheels
1: yeah is it a tiny house is it what is it yeah
0: so a lot of questions here um i think we'll leave you with those questions
1: yeah. And if you have any questions with respect to being on an HOA board, um, how to govern, uh, problems that are arising, um, that sort of thing, we would encourage you to call Christopher Cook um, <laughs> or, <laughs> or Amy Knight or Amy Knight and at Holly Troxel, and we would be happy to help answer some of those questions.
0: All right. Thanks, Amy.
1: All right. Thanks for coming, Christopher.